Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Okay, well, all right, guys, welcome. Uh, I'll get you maybe 45 minutes to an hour and get you out of here because I do not have the material that they want me to have. Uh, But we're going to be talking about a need for rest, and it'll become very obvious why they chose me uh, to teach this in just a few minutes. Um, But Mark 6.30 is where we're going to be starting. I won't have a specific spot that we're going to be talking about. Uh, But we'll cover all that. Um, I'm surprised James isn't in here because I think I've figured out why I got chosen to teach this. And it's because, and I figured there'd be a lot more pastors trying to figure this one out too, is I got 12 weeks off in the fall for my sabbatical. And I think what the goal is here is for me to teach all the pastors on how to get 12 weeks off from their church without getting fired. Uh, Yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm sure he's going to be, and he's probably going to make sure each deacon gets, okay, you need to hear this guy, all right? So we, we're, we're going to be talking about the need for rest. Now, primarily what I'm going to be teaching about is going to apply to pastors for the most part, and the reason being is because this study, uh, what I'm going to be doing is my first sermon back from sabbatical, and I basically started with what I learned during there, uh, and, and I'm going to be talking about why I needed to have a sabbatical, but I'd also say it's important that everybody in the room get it for these reasons. One, if you're going to be a church member of any church, then you need to be looking after your pastor and and making sure he's taken care of. And so you need to be sensitive to those things that he's going through. But at the same time, you may be a missionary one day. Who knows what God has for you? And the same principles that we're going to be talking about rest here will apply to you. And let's say you don't do any of that. Let's just say you are just going to be a person in a church, discipling other people in the church and honoring the local assembly and doing what your pastor tells you to do. The same principles of rest still apply to you as they do anybody else. I mean, think about it. We don't even get out of Genesis 1 before God's going, hey, let me show you some stuff about resting. And the principle was applied to himself. Now, he's God. He's self-sufficient. The purpose of showing the rest was not about because he was exhausted or tired. It's a principle he's setting forth. And so we're going to look at some verses. I'm going to try to do my best. Uh, We only got one TV in here. And I basically, for the most part, preach straight from a PowerPoint. So you have a handout. That handout will come into play on my last point. Uh, So you can either write notes on it. But I'm going to lay out some principles. I'm going to give you my story of how I got in my position of where I was at. And then I'm going to start showing you the six places where Jesus chose to leave the crowd for solitude. And I think this is something pastors at times feel guilty of. But in Matthew or in Mark, I'm sorry, 630 says, and the apostles gathered themselves together onto Jesus. And so he had sent them out to do some stuff. And they come back and says, and he told and told him all both what they had done, that's one, right, and what they had taught. Well, that pretty much sums up the job of a pastor. The stuff you're doing and the stuff you're teaching. 
Everything that we do as pastors can be wrapped up in those two comments, the stuff we do and the stuff we teach. That's why we exist. As soon as Jesus hears this in verse 31, he says unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest. Okay, that's where he starts. So he hears it. Now, now get it. Verse 30, they're kind of jacked up excited. Hey, man, let's, we're excited, Jesus. Let us tell you what we've been doing and what we've been teaching. And he, through his wisdom, says, that's great. Now, come follow me into a desert place because you need some rest. Right? Now, notice the words of Scripture. It's important that you see this. He says, come into a desert place and rest a while. Then he says, for they were Many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. Now, notice the word is different. Now, we could go into Greek and go and figure all that out, but just look at it in the English. He uses two different words. Hey, come here because you haven't had any rest. You need some rest, and you haven't had any leisure either. So he's got, he's got them leaving out, and he uses two different words on purpose. The word rest is refreshing. It's literally about refreshment and getting refreshed in what you're doing. And he's saying, I'm, I'm great. I'm, I'm so glad that you guys have went out and done all this stuff. You've healed people. You've taught the word of God. People's lives have been changed. But now I need you to stop that for a minute. And I need you to come out and rest and get refreshed because I'm going to need you to go do that again. And if you go do it right now, you're not going to be ready. So let's, let's get you out here and, and rest. Then he switches up and talks about leisure. The word leisure is literally means to have a good time. If you look it up, biblically speaking, it means to have a good time. Now, I think most pastors and church workers have got this having a good time thing down. I mean, think about it. We have a great time for the most part. Right? This week, Troy and, and, and Jeff has stayed in my house and so yesterday, Troy and I hung out and had leisure, had a good time hanging out. But let's just be honest, it wasn't a lot of resting going on. I was kind of exhausted, right? <laughs> no offense to Troy, but you're an exhausting person, right? So, but my point is, that's not rest, okay? That's leisure. Tomorrow, I'm getting on a flight. I'm going to ski in Utah. And when I get back Sunday night, I will be exhausted, that's not rest. That's leisure. We're really good at leisure. We're not really good at rest. And I think it's interesting that the very context of leisure is tied in with eating food. Isn't that where most of your leisure is? Eating food? And most of my wife and I's life in the ministry has been dinners with people at our church and having good times. I mean, think about it. More than likely, you're going to leave this conference, you're going to find somebody you hook up with and go, hey, let's go get some lunch. And so we're going to have a good time with it. But that's not leisure. It's not. I mean, excuse me, that's not rest. And so the importance is rest. Now, the next verse, and I, I, I won't have you turn there, but you can write it down and maybe go look to it, is Matthew eleven twenty eight. Now, he's going to switch up a little different. He says, come on to me, all you that are labor and are heavy laden. Now, if you just sat in Sam's class talking about counseling, now think about what all pastors go through, because it gets dumped on them. And when I think of heavy laden, well, you're laden down with a lot of stuff as a pastor. Now, Sam is a much better person to teach counseling than me. 
Because my view towards most counseling is you don't want help. You just want to vent. And so as a pastor, I am now no longer just a guy studying the Word of God to feed you. I'm now your psychiatrist. And you want to sit on my couch and tell me all your problems. And here's the problem. You feel better when you leave because you've dumped it off. Well, guess who's got it now? Now I'm carrying it around. And when you add that up amongst all the people, after a while, it's, it's a heavy laden upon that individual. And you carry that. Uh, one of the things you will find out in just a minute is I also own an awning company. So we have a construction company that we run. And I wouldn't advise my pastoring model to anybody. It's just not a smart model. It's the one I'm in. Uh, and I don't have a choice to it, but it's the one I'm in. And so people will say, are you a full-time pastor? Yes, I'm a full-time pastor. But I thought you owned a company. I do. But I don't get to check in and check out and go, well, I clock in on Sunday, and then I clock out and go home. That's not how that works. I'm a pastor at 1 o'clock in the morning when I can't sleep because I've got issues going on or people with problems and they feel like I need to solve them for them. And luckily for the most part, I have a good staff of guys around me and most people don't come to me for counseling because they know you're not going to get the couch to vent on. You're going to get the three-step program on here's your stinking problem. Here's how you fix it. Go deal with it. And when you get done, come see me. And if that doesn't solve it, I don't know what else to tell you. And so... If you know that going in, you generally go, "Ah, I'll pick that pastor to go do it. So that part helps me. But I want you to notice, he says, all you that are labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He's he's talking to Jesus is talking to the crew now. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly and of heart in heart. Ye shall find rest unto your souls. Now, I think, we, I think we're pretty good at finding rest for our body. And where I had my breakdown, and I'm, don't make it sound like I had a mental breakdown and they put me in a rubber room or anything, but where I finally came to a place to go, I'm done. I can't go any further, wasn't necessarily physical exhaustion. It was the mental exhaustion that I'd gotten to. And if you understand what a soul is, the soul is a body shape inside of you that is the real you. Where you're doing your thinking, your emotions, all that comes from your soul. And so when you're a pastor and you're carrying the load of all these people, where it begins to weigh down on you is not necessarily physical, although it can. Most of it is from your soul. And he said, man, come on to me and I will give you rest onto your soul, which is very important. All right. Now, once again, I know you're hearing me talk a lot about pastoring and all that because I'm just going to give you my heart on this subject. And that's who I am, and that's what I went through. But every one of these principles can apply to every one of us. All right? Now, a, a study of pastors by Duke Divinity School found that pastors deal with anxiety and depression at a significant higher rate than the rest of our culture. And I would tell you the vast majority of that is because the crowd of your church dumps on the, the pastor, but he doesn't necessarily have a place that he can dump all right? and, and speak. That's one of the reasons why this fellowship is a big deal. And it's because pastors can get together and actually have conversations that you probably couldn't have with your church members. 
that you can have with, with somebody who also goes, oh, I, I get it. I'm going through what you're going through. And, and so we also see this. A study being conducted at the University of Notre Dame says that one-third of clergy report moderate to high levels of burnout. Fifty percent of pastors report moderate to high levels of exhaustion. I will tell you the American church is a pattern off of Fortune 500 companies. And so what we do is we think in order for a church to be successful, it has to grow and grow and grow. And here's the problem. Nowhere in Scripture have we been given the mandate to grow the church. Matter of fact, every place in Scripture that you see that the church grew, it's Him doing it, the Lord doing it. Upon the, this rock, I will build my church. And the Lord added to the church daily as he saw fit. All right? We're not mandated to grow a church. We're mandated to grow people. And if God so chooses, and I'm going to show you just, we're going to get on some suicide stuff here. Not that I was suicidal, but I'm, I'm trying to show you where this leads to. You're going to find out no matter the size of the church, the pressure on the individual is the same. The need for rest is the same, whether it's a guy pastoring 30 people or 3,000 people. It doesn't matter that the need is still there, okay? And so a 2013 study from Schaefer Institution reported that 1,700 pastors leave the ministry each month, citing depression, burnout, and being overworked as the primary reason. 1,700 a month, which is nuts, guys. Especially when we're having these conferences to train up people. And if we're having that many people quit, and we're not, let's just be honest, we're not really that great at training up the next crew, eventually you're going to run out of people, right? And which, if you really begin to study, you're going to find out that the endangered species in America today is pastors. People are wanting to leave it. Yours truly, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. All right. 71% uh, of churches have no plan for a pastor to receive. A, what's that? What do you say? So 71% of churches have no plan for a pastor to receive a periodic sabbatical, which is what case I was in. What has since transpired is our church has decided one month out of a year. So every 11 months, I take four weeks off where I don't walk in the building. Like, don't walk in here, don't call him, don't email him, one month out of a year. Now, who knows, for some other churches, that may be once every five years or whatever. Uh, mine's probably a little different because of my situation, but there needs to be a plan in every church to look after the rest for that pastor. Because most pastors that do go on vacations, it's not like they stop pastoring on vacation. They're still working that. And how many times are they getting phone calls? Why on vacation? That's one of the reasons we started taking cruises. You get off shore about three or four miles, your phone doesn't work. Well, this is great. I'll, fig I'll figure out the problems when I get back. 52% of pastors feel overworked and cannot meet their church unrealistic expectations, which is what I would tell you is the job and the role of a pastor has changed over the years, and he's become a jack of all trades and does all this stuff. And it's like, wait a minute. All right? Now, here's a stat for you. One out of every 10 pastors will actually retire as a pastor, meaning 90% of pastors will not end up pastoring at the time of retirement. 
because of burnout and quitting and just saying, I've had enough. And most of them are not saying I'm leaving the ministry. Most people, most pastors I know are not saying I want to quit on Jesus. Most of them are saying, I just don't want to do it from that level anymore. I want to step back. Prime example, we just lost Mark Trotter. Look at what Mark did for years. He no longer was in the big chair. He just stepped back into a different role and was much more happier that way. Okay, why? Because you don't have the pressure when you're just the teaching pastor or the, the whatever. Now, I would also tell you that exhaustion still applies even to the guy in that level because there's a lot of demand. Right? 54% of pastors find that the role of pastoring is overwhelming. Right? And here's what's interesting. I, I pastor a small church. We started out in 2006 with about 30, 35 people. We run about 150 now. I mean, and, and, and the bottom line is my job there, it's not like I have staff and staff of people to go here. Do you understand guys like Adrian Rogers for years? And you would listen to him preach, and you'd go, oh, my God, that guy's, he's so deep. He was, and he was gifted of God. Those mega churches have guys on staff, and they will go to them. And it'd be like me going up here to Code and, and, and uh, what's your name? Uh, uh, yes, that's it. Lee. Okay. So, so anyway, imagine these guys being on my staff, and I go, hey, guys, next month I'm going to be teaching on this subject. I need you to go study these subjects and bring me back info. My they're going to help me with my content and then I'm going to arrange it to make it my sermon. Well, can you imagine having how much easier your job would be? I mean, you're not digging all the time. So when we see these big mega churches, we think, "Oh man, these guys are doing it." Hold up. That's not normal. The average church in America is 52 members the average church. And when you have 52 members, you're everything. I mean, you're, the, you're your own sermon prep. You're the counselor, the psychiatrist. You're the guy with the couch. You're doing discipleship. I've never looked at my people and say, I need you doing discipleship and me going, well, I don't do it. I'm the pastor. I've always had guys in my house on a Thursday night and me teaching and training them. Uh, handyman. You know, it's, it's funny. I was at Missions Focus a few years back, and they were talking. Some guy asked the question, what do you think I should be doing right now to prepare myself for missions? Uh, do you know how to change a toilet or unclog one? I mean, and you go, what's that got to do in it? Because when you get to the field, it's not like you have a staff of people, especially if you're a missionary. You better learn to be able to do all these things. And, and when you start going down the list of what my job description is, it's, Basically this, whatever to get it done. I, I have to do all those things. And so they get a little overwhelming. 50% have considered leaving the ministry in the last month. 50% of ministers stay, uh, starting out will not last five years. So statistics says the guys that we're training up and we're going to send out, 50% of them, half of them are not going to last five years and they're done. So we're in a discipleship conference. And we're here to train guys to say, hey, we're going to train you up to send you out. And then we're going to turn around and have to train up more because in five years, you're not even going to be doing this anymore. That's not exponential growth. That's just barely maintaining. All right. So I'm going to give you my story here and, and I'll be quick with the rest of the facts and all that. I'm, I, I wasn't wanting to bore you. I just want to kind of set the stage 
of what most ministers go through. And so here's my story, okay? So I started pastoring 15 years ago at this church. When I did, I was a member for six years there, and I had an awning company I had started before I actually started pastoring. And my whole goal was, I'm just going to do this awning thing until God opens the door to be a full-time minister, a full-time pastor. And I thought, maybe a couple years into this, this is what we'll do. We were in the middle of building a building, so I was like, hey, no pay. I, I won't get paid for the first two years. Let's, let's make sure we're, we're putting all our money into the building fund. I'm working a job. I'm doing all that. At that time, we have Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, because back in those days, if you didn't have Sunday night, that was like Mark of the Beast. You know, that's, <laughs> that's blaspheming of the Holy Spirit to not have a Sunday night service. And then we would have Wednesday night services. And so back in those days, as I'm going through that, I'm preaching Sunday school. I'm teaching a class because remember, you got 30 plus. It's not like we have a plethora of people to go, hey. Let's get him to teach. Most of the people that were available were like, yeah, I, I can't have him teaching right now. Right? So I would teach Sunday school for the adults. I would preach the main service, go home, prepare, be back at five, preach the Sunday night service, get up on Monday morning and switch modes. And I'm teaching the book of Revelation. It took me 93 Wednesday nights. Right? And I'm teaching that on Wednesday night. Get up on Thursday and switch. I got to go back into Sunday school mode, learn that so that I can switch on Saturday to go to Sunday morning service mode. And I would do that week in and week out every year for three or four or five years uh, until I finally got some help. All right. Well, then I, I just now gave up Sunday school a few years ago. Okay. Um, in this same time, I'm, I'm trying to... My clicker is not working no longer. What, what's going on here? I don't know. Maybe we can just click here? There's nothing working. So while you work that, I will tell the story. So at the same time, when we started out running about 30 people, I have a business that does $250,000 a year in, in awnings. This year, we're running 150, and I'm just short of a million dollars a year in an awning business. That takes me $40,000 a month to break even. And what I mean by break even, that's to pay all the employees, to pay the overhead, the electrical bill, buy the supplies. So it's $10,000 a week just to go break even. That pressure's there every single day of my life along with this. And then, are we running again? Down arrow, okay. Uh, okay, so, and then, in that same time of pastoring for 15 years, in 2007, we built a, about a 10,000 square foot gym. In 2016, we added on an education center onto that. And when, when we're at Kelly Harbin, my church, and we say we build a building, that doesn't mean we hire contractors and that we're kind of the people building it. We're the guys actually framing it. We're, we're the guys lifting the steel, bolting the building together, putting the insulation in. And so all that's been great on our budget. It's just exhausting. Okay? You know, you're, you're the guy doing it. Uh, if you ever come to our church, I do theme rooms. All, I, I go in and redecorate rooms to, into these themes, and they're really cool looking. Time, energy, money. It's just exhausting. At that same time, on Thursday nights, 
I've been for 10 years, Thursday night's been my discipleship night. It's generally, I don't disciple the new Christian. I'm generally taking the guy who's been discipled for the most part and going, okay, let's teach you next level stuff. And so they sit at my, my, my house. But yet at the same time, my wife and I disciple couples together. Right? So that goes on. Then at the same time, I'm still a husband. I'm still a father. I got a son playing travel ball baseball. I got two daughters that are involved in sports in high school. And so you try to get to all that. And eventually you wake up one day and you go, okay, enough. I can't make all the events. I can't do all the stuff anymore. And so here's, here's the real short story. People go, how'd you get 12 weeks off? Well, I walked in with a 12-week sabbatical plan to my deacons. And I laid it out to him and said, okay, you can either agree to the sabbatical or you can get a pulpit committee. It's up to you. Right? And they're going, well, okay, I guess you got 12 weeks off. Right? So there it is, class over. I mean, let's just go in. But no, it's, it, the, the bottom line is I literally was at a place of not just physical exhaustion, but mental exhaustion, and I had to have time off, right? And I have, this is not like I'm a lone ranger here. I, at the time of the sabbatical, I had two associate pastors that both did their jobs well. It's just overwhelming what all has to, we have to do. And I felt, and I, it's no, I'm not ripping on my church, but I felt like nobody's listening to me. So when I stood up that Sunday morning to tell the church, I'm done. For 12 weeks, don't call me, don't text me, don't email me, don't anything. I'm not walking on the grounds, and I didn't. And they honored that, and all the stuff went through it. Now, to help with me, my church went along and said, okay, not only are we going to give him a new uh, setup where he gets one month off a year, but we also changed our deacon's ministry. Now, imagine a church actually doing what Acts talks about deacons were four, right? So now when you join our church, every family is assigned a deacon. So if you came and joined our church, they would assign your family a deacon. You cannot bring anything to me unless it's, you know, you and your husband are getting a divorce or something. If it's something major, we get it. But if it's whatever, you just name it. You start with your deacon. If he cannot solve your problem, he goes to the other deacons. If they as a group can't handle it, then they bring it to us. But think about how much of the washing away that is. And so when we think about counseling sessions like Sam just taught about, the idea that it should just be the pastor? No. Do you understand what discipleship really does for a church? If you're discipling somebody, if Troy's discipling somebody at my church, all the problems that person may be going through, he's handling all that before I don't even know about it. Like he's solving those issues and it never gets to me. And once again, if he's obviously going, hey, we got a major issue here. Well, then fine. I'd want to know about it then. But most things are not major issues. All right. So now what I'd learned in this process of of and by the way, can I not get your clicker and maybe try that? Because I don't want to reach across this thing every time. Uh, so some of the stuff that I learned when I was in my sabbatical, my first sermon back, is number one, I figured out I still want to pastor. Because if you'd ask me in October, do you want to do this anymore? Nope. I wanted to quit then, didn't have liberty from God to do so. So I was like, okay, 
I still want to do this. That's the first thing I learned. The second thing I learned was pastoring is not what I do. Pastoring is who I am. It's not something I, like a, awnings are what I do, but pastoring is who I am. And the fact that it was so important is because I knew I couldn't quit that. How do you quit who you are? It's who you are. It's how you were designed. And so I don't know that I'm going to be in the big chair as the lead pastor for much longer, but I know I still want to pastor. And I learned that from just having 12 weeks to go, I don't want to think about nothing. I want to veg out. I want to be a millennial. All right, now, <laughs> I did, where are we at? Okay, there we go. Biblical principles. So now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you some biblical principles. We'll go through this, and then we'll finally get to your notes. All right? And I'm just going to use this class to vent. All right? So now, the, the biblical principles. Obviously, God sets, up, God sets up this whole thing of rest way back in the day, guys. I mean, obviously, we see this all the way back to Genesis, but he reiterates it in the law. And that's important because the stuff done in Genesis wasn't done under the law. That's just a side note there. Uh, so when we look at what's going on, this principle is applied pre-law, law, and in the day of grace. God, and even the millennial, as you'll see. But everything comes back to a time of rest. And God says it this way, Six days shalt thou work, and on the seventh day thou shalt rest. Thine oxen, thine ass, may rest, the son of thy handmaiden, the stranger, and look at the word he says, may be refreshed. If you remember when Jesus was talking, hey, look at all the stuff we were doing and teaching Jesus, that's cool. Let's go up here into the mountain so you can get rest, which is the word refreshed. Right? He even sets that principle up there. Right? That's one of the reasons we got rid of Sunday night. I went to our deacons and said, you know, we're, we're, everybody's yelling about having church on Sunday night. Do you feel a day of rest when we're doing this? I mean, the, the principle is supposed to be a day of rest. And yet we go to church Sunday morning, Sunday schools, church, and then come back that night. And I don't feel refreshed. I feel exhausted. Amen. I mean, it's just, uh, dude, can I get some time off? I, when we switch to a no church service, I am a, I, I'm a guy that feels like I probably need to honor God. So I'm going to come home, put my pajamas on. And I'm going straight to bed after I eat lunch. When she wakes me up for supper, I'm going to eat again. I'm going right back to bed. And I'm just feeling like, hey, I'm doing what the Bible says. I, I, I'm taking a day of rest. But it's the principle laid out. And it doesn't matter if you work in a secular job and you're just a church member. You need a day of rest. You need to get refreshed. Because when your body gets tired, your mind will get tired with it. It just it always goes together. Right? Then, not only do we see this principle applied to days, we see this principle applied to weeks, right? I mean, Leviticus 23, right? he talks about the seventh Sabbath. In other words, every seven weeks, he says, take a break. Right? Now, pre-COVID, and one of the things I didn't tell you is the nail that finally broke me, or the straw that broke the camel's back, I guess, is the, I don't know that a nail would break you, but you get what I'm saying was COVID. When we had to enter into that whole, let's preach on video and then get it out online and oh, somewhere in the middle of this, I've not only a handyman, I'm now a video editor. And I got to get this out here. So because of our governor 
setting it up where we could only have 10 people at the beginning, I was adamant that, guys, we're a church. We're a called out assembly. If he allows 10, we're going to have 10. And so we would come in on Saturday night with 10 people and me, and I would preach, record it. The next day, we would have that on YouTube for all those that were sitting at the house. But the next day, I'd come back down to the church. We'd have 10 more people, and then I'd preach the same service. And part of it was we wanted to keep our identity as a church. We wanted to honor our governor and his mandate, but yet at the same time, we're a called-out assembly. I'm sorry, I don't care what this generation thinks, you can't do church online. It's impossible. You can't do Hebrews 10.25 online. It's just not going to work. And then a lot of times that first recording wouldn't work. It wouldn't record for some reason. So I would come back down at 6 a.m., preach to an empty building so that we could rush home, get it online so I could rush back and do another sermon. So three in a row. And then I got through that and I was like, you know what? I'm done. I don't know what's going on in America, and I don't know what's going on with this COVID issue, but I'm trying to pastor, and it was tough before COVID. Now i got to add this to it. So before COVID, how I maintained my sanity was I had an agreement with our church that every seventh, six to seven weeks, I'm out. I'm going somewhere. My wife and I would go to take a flight to New York. We'd, we'd go out of town somewhere to some city, and I'd take the weekend off, and we'd fly out from Thursday and fly back on Sunday, and I'd do that about every seven weeks. And then when COVID hit, well, you're not going anywhere. So that ended that fun, right? So no more seven weeks off, right? So not only do we see it in seven weeks, we see that principle added in months, right? Leviticus 23, 24, speak unto the children of Israel, saying, in the seventh month, in the first day of the month, ye shall have a Sabbath, okay? So every seven months. And my advisement to everybody, and by the way, these are principles that are starting to be applied in the corporate world CEOs are getting sabbaticals now. They're paying for employees to take time off because they figured out you're a better employee with time off. And about every seven weeks or seven months, people take a vacation somewhere. It's generally about how it works out. And, and having time off is important. God knew all this, okay? Then we see it in years, okay? So seven years, right? I wrote a bunch of notes down. I still can't. Oh, watch this. So every seven years, he tells the, the crew, can't plant the field this year. Okay? And we always focus on, well, God's given the land rest. And he was. But do you understand by de facto who else is resting? If you're told you can't plant your field this year and you're a farmer, well, guess who's got the year off? So God's going, hey, man, now think about it. God's given you and I a field. And the same principles that are applied to the field in the Old Testament should be applied in the New Testament. Now, I'm not telling you to take a year off. But there's a time when you walk away from the field, give the field a break, and then you take a break at the same time. And it's important. It, and, uh, you know, this is not legalism, guys. It's not you got to take it every seven years. It's when you need it. I, I mean, I went 15 years before I ever took time off. I never thought nothing about it until I got to the 15th year. Maybe I should have took something at seven years. Maybe I wouldn't have been so jacked up. So then we not only see this, but we see the principle applying to every 49 years, the 50th year being the leap year. So God works this thing out not only in days, weeks, months, years, but in weeks of years. 
All right, so every 49 years, God says, that's it. Everybody's taking a break. But if you'll notice at the end of the passage there in verse 25 and uh, chapter 25, 8 and 10, he says that, she, that ye shall return every man unto his family. So one of the things about the Jubilee is everything went back to the original landowner or whatever. Debts were freed. What is God trying to do? He's trying to restore it. The key word being restored. Why should you take time off? Refreshing and getting restored. When I came back from sabbatical in January and I began to preach, I had multiple people go, that's the best preaching I've ever heard you do. And I'm going, really? Because it's kind of a devotional. I've done some really deep stuff around here. My best stuff is not here, you know? And they're, they're like, no, this is, this, is, this is better than I've heard you in years. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm just giving you what I learned in a sabbatical. And they're obviously me as an individual, spiritual restoration has a difference. It's not always how deep you are in a pulpit, by the way. It's, it's, it's God's movement with those words. All right? So then, not only is it applied in years, but it's applied in millenniums. God lets you know a thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years, right? Well, you don't have to be a, you know, a Clarence Larkin freak to figure out, and I say freak is not good. I'm a Clarence Larkin freak. Right? I like Larkin. You don't have to be real deep to figure out God laid this thing out in 7,000 periods, seven 1,000-year periods, and we are coming on the door of that seventh thousandth year, right? And if you take the principle of the millennium back to Genesis, God said that seventh day is my day or the Lord's day. Right? He's not talking about Sunday. He's actually talking about that millennial reign. That's going to be my day. And if you take what Peter says and then you go over to Hebrews chapter 4, and if you really want to understand Hebrews chapter 4, he keeps talking about rest, rest. I think he says it Four times in the chapter, rest, rest, maybe seven. And he's referencing the millennial kingdom. And do you know what the millennial kingdom is going to be about? Not just you and I taking a break, but this planet taking a break. And reigning, or resting and restoring. And if you understand, if you go into the book of Acts and some of the preaching that Peter's doing, and he uses that term restoration. And that's the reference he's talking about. He's going back to that millennial reign. So God is real big on this resting thing. Now, I'll finish with this. The biblical pattern. All right, now check this out. We're, we're going to talk. We can finally look at our notes now that I've had some filler. All right? Now check this out. Biblical pattern. So Jesus has six times in the gospel that he chooses to walk away from the people to go into solitude. Now, that's almost unheard of as, as pastors. Wait a minute, you're leaving the people? The people is your product. What are you, you're going to leave them and go be by yourself? Yes, I am. Now, was there not a need in the people's lives when he walked away? Of course there was. But he knew the principle was, if I don't get away, I'm never going to meet that need anyway. And so you and I, as pastors, and those of you that are not, or maybe who knows what God's going to have for you in the future, we're going to have to recognize that if I'm going to be effective for these people, 
and meet their needs, then I'm going to have to walk away from them at times and have a time by myself. And some of the stuff that I said was my major downfall was I lost my public ministry because I had lost my private ministry. And, and, and what happens is we get so busy doing the stuff for God. We're like Martha. You know, she's running about. And here's Mary just sitting at the feet of Jesus. And what I wanted to do for 12 weeks, and I did, was just sit at the feet of Jesus. I don't have nothing to worry about. I don't have to go, wait a minute, is that class starting when? Okay, I need to make sure I've got that PowerPoint ready. And, oh, my goodness, I'm teaching that. You know, I had one of those moments this morning. I'm teaching at our church tonight, and I'm going, great. I haven't thought about that a whole lot. I guess my afternoons are kind of busy, right? Now, I want you to notice, number one, he always took a time of solitude when he prepared for a major task, okay? Now, we'll see this. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. All right, so Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan, where the baptism was, right, the, where he was baptized, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Notice, notice who led him out there. Being 40 days tempted of the devil, and in those days he didn't eat nothing, and when, it were, and when they were ended, after he had hungered. Okay, and we all know the story about how he was tempted by Satan. But if you drop down to verse 14 of that same chapter, it says, and then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to go into Galilee, and he starts preaching and his fame goes out. Now, before he ever does the filled with the Spirit and power, he gets led by that same Spirit out into the wilderness. Now, it's, it seems a little weird that God would set that up that way. Wait a minute, God, you, you drug him out into the wilderness to be attacked by Satan. How is that rest? Well, you ever think maybe if we took on Satan in a place of solitude, then we might have a better shot at having power once we go back out into the public. And let me give you an example. James says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So before he went in in the power of the Spirit and preached, he went ahead and fought that fight in the background. Took on Satan over here so that when I resist him over here, I can be in the Spirit over here leading people to Christ. And the problem is we don't choose, like, uh, we, 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 we handle Satan like Corona. We run from it. We try to avoid it. You can't avoid him. You can either head up and take him on, and I'm not, I'm not talking about demanding demons and all that goofiness. I'm talking about getting alone with God and resisting Satan and his temptations so that we can come back over here and go, okay, I've, I've fought that. I'm now ready to go. Sermon prep, a lot of times for, I, I won't speak for all pastors, but I definitely will speak for me. When I think of sermon prep, most of the time I'm thinking intellectually. I need to break these scriptures down, exegete it, try to figure out how to systematically re-spit this out. When the real battle isn't the exegeted. It's not the, do you, do you understand systematic theology? The real battle is, have you taken on your enemy? So when I came back and everybody's like, dude, that's the best I've heard you preach. It went against everything that was in my mind, because, well, I didn't spend a whole lot of time studying this, guys. I didn't tell you anything real deep this morning. I, I didn't have a whole lot of exegeted line-for-line line 
precept upon precept stuff. I'm just giving you my heart. And they're going, yeah. yeah, because I'm over here and I've had that battle for 12 weeks. So now I can step out and deal with, okay, let me just give you what God gave me and people's lives are changed. All right. Now, when we think about this, so if Jesus went ahead and said, hey, before I'm going to do this major task, I need to spend some time alone. So this church just put on this conference. I couldn't imagine what James has went through the weeks leading up to this. And how exhausting will he be when we're all gone? I mean, this is a, I know from just what little I've done as a pastor, a lot of times when I have guys in and we're having events, I don't ever enjoy it. I don't. I mean, I'm like, I'm worried like, oh, man, has that gotten done? Oh my goodness. Are we going to have this? And then generally the guy I have in is Brett, which just makes it worse. All right. <laughs> so, so the bottom, the bottom line is you got to think of James after this conference, right? Before he went into this conference, it probably wouldn't have been a bad idea for the church to go, Hey, you know what? We got that conference coming up in six weeks. Why don't you and your family take a week off and just go do your thing, get prepared. Right. But we don't think about that. Right. Number two, so not only does, did he do it to prepare for major tasks, he did it to recharge after hard work, which is the flip side of this conference, okay? So we go back to our, our main verse that we started out with, Mark 6, 30, 31. So he, we're talking about to recharge after hard work. All right? Notice what he says here. He says, And the apostles gathered themselves together onto Jesus and told all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Okay, so the life of a, of a minister or a church person for that matter, if you're going to do what you're supposed to do, you're going to be doing a lot of things and you're going to be teaching a lot of things. Doesn't matter what level you're on. And, and maybe after you have some of those things, he says, you know what, guys, I know you've done that, but you got to stop, take some time off. And it would be a good idea for a church like this to go, you know what, James has just went through this event. Let's give him some time off. Why, why don't you go take your family, y'all go chill out, go do whatever it is you do, and give him that opportunity to do so. Now, I'm doing this because I know it's being recorded, and I'm trying to make sure he invites me back. <laughs> so the best way to do that is kind of get him a vacation time. All right, so, but, but my point is, think about what all you go through and what you do as a pastor or just a layperson in the church. And we, always, we never think about going into the task, and then when we get done with the task, we never think about taking some time off after it. And maybe if we prepare before and after, then just maybe a few times down the road, it makes a difference. Instead of just going through the emotions. And that's kind of what's, you know, when we went through both of our building programs, I ran, I've ran every construction project at our church for 21 years. And when I say I ran it, oversaw every bit of it, dealt with any contractor we brought in. I, I, I designed all of it, gave it to an architect, made him put it on CAD. And I, and I even when I was studying, I thought, man, maybe in 2016, when we dedicated the new building, maybe I probably should have took some time off and said, OK, guys, I got that project done. But instead, you know what no, most pastors do? OK, that's done. What's next? And we don't take time off. And the people definitely don't think nothing about going, hey, dude, you just finished this. Why don't you, why don't you and your family go six, you know, two weeks down to Florida? They wouldn't, most people don't think that way. 
And I'm, I'm going to get to why that is, hopefully, Lord willing. All right, now, number three, all right, to work through grief. And I'm going to hang here for just a little bit. You understand, as ministers and church people, we bury our own sheep. So you pour your life into an individual, and they die, and then your job is to console their family, and yet put them in the ground, and yet nobody stops to think for the pastor, he's just lost somebody that was important to him in his life. And so now he's having to deal with grief. Now the family, it makes sense. They've lost a loved one. But what about the guy who is the shepherd of that individual? Because if you're a true shepherd of God, then that sheep means the world to you. And so when you lose them for whatever reason, it's the same thing. When people leave my church, one of the things that I have struggled with in years to try to define is when they leave, and people will leave your church. That's just, that's gonna, people come and go. That's going to happen. The key is, can you do it without taking it personal? And I don't know. I think most of us pastors take it personal because we're like, you're not rejecting my church. You're rejecting me. You don't like my leadership. And so we take it personal. Now, there are certain people who have left, and I'm like, amen. I mean, I have literally said this to people who have said, I think God's leading us away. And I've said, I think you're right. You're a problem, and I'm glad you're gone. Right? And so, but the, ma the vast majority of it is not like that. You don't want to lose those people. And if you've poured your life into an individual, my wife will know who I'm talking about. When I first started pastoring, I had a young man and his wife going to our church. I married the two, and we were training him to become a youth, person, or youth director in our church. Thursday nights in my house, a couple years, six months on the job, he goes, I'm done. I go, you're done with what? I, I don't want to teach anymore. Okay, the hardest part about discipleship is to pour your life into somebody and it go nowhere. You, it's deflating. And you literally grieve those things. You're like, oh, man. First of all, I, I go through fits of rage of like, I poured my life. I've wasted my Thursday nights on you. I could have been working with somebody else. And yet you're going, man, I hope something's stuck. And now this guy claims to be an atheist. And I'm like, oh, this is great. And then you question yourself, like, did I do something wrong here? Did I train him up wrong? Because if you go to the whole thing of Jesus, you'll know the tree by the fruit they bear. You understand he's talking about false teachers. And then you start questioning yourself. Am I a false teacher? Am I messing people up? So the bottom line is we handle grief. And sometimes as a pastor, it gets dumped on you and you're grieving also, but you don't have a vent. You don't have an outlet for that. I mean, the day that Mark died, uh, that Saturday, we had people from out of town in. And when I got the news, I'm with a group of people who don't know Mark, and I literally don't have a moment just to go, let me go deal with this. I never, and I, you know, you just shove your emotions down. And so the next day I got up at church to announce to the church that Mark had passed away. And then the moment hit me. And now I can't talk, and I'm... I'm like, okay, everybody's staring at me. I'm trying to do the announcements, and I'm trying to grip myself to do it. And my moment of grief hits me at that moment, and I'm like, I can't do this. Like, I have got to get myself under control. Well, why? Because I had a job to do. 
I, it wasn't like I could go, hey, why don't you finish service? I'm going to go out here in a room. And, and I was, remember thinking, man, we don't get enough time to grieve because we're on to the next project. And it's, this thing is very depressing at times. You feel like you're on an island. You feel like you have failed people's lives. And it just gets to you after a while. Now, I, I want you to, I'm going to take you through some verses, and then I'm going to get you some real serious stuff. All right? Now, verse 10. Uh, verse 10 of Matthew 14. John the Baptist is getting beheaded. Okay? I'm just giving you the context here. And they bring his head on a charter. So then, verse 12, they're going to bury him. So they're going to go bring him by and and bury uh, John the Baptist in verse 13. It says, And when Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. He had a love for John. And when John died, here is God in human flesh grieving over it. And he says, man, I'm taking some time away. I don't know if they had an evangelistic service planned. I don't know what they had going as far as that day's events on, on ministry, but it all came to an end at that moment. And he's like, that's it. I'm going off. I'm spending some time by myself, which is eventually what I did when Mark died. We spent, um, we went to Israel with Mark a few years ago, uh, back in 17. And so I just got up at my computer and just started clicking pictures of us and just having my moment by myself. I don't want to, I don't want to be in a group when I'm doing it. I just want some time alone. I got in my truck, played CDs of Mark preaching just to process the information, but I wanted to do it by myself. And I think most people handle grief that way. I need a moment by myself. And I think pastors have a hard time going, okay, I've got to stop doing what I'm doing and I've got to go be by myself for a little while and let the Spirit of God uh, deal with this. All right? Galatians tells us, uh, I'm sorry, I was a little behind on my little clicker there. Uh, Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says it this way. All right? He says, Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, which we're going to assume are the pastors, or at least hopefully us, right? you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted... Right? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And that's what we do as pastors. We bear one another's burdens. But the problem is we, we generally don't have a place to dump that off to. And a lot of times it's information we're not even allowed to dump off. Yeah. And so now you're just kind of going, okay, let me bag that away and walk around with it. And the grief sticks in. Now check this out. 35% of pastors battle depression and fear of inadequacy. Inadequacy. 35%. So basically, about three and a half pastors you meet. So I don't know, what do we got, 20, 30 pastors in here? So you're talking nine of them suffering from depression? And most of them would never admit it because that's, let's be honest, we're supposed to be the guys running the show. We're supposed to be the leaders. We can't show weakness. We've got to be the guys that go, no, 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 no. No, follow me, and I'll lead you. And half the time inside, we're crying like little children because it's like, oh, man, I'm overwhelmed. All right? Now, hang with me. How many of you guys have ever heard of this guy? He was on staff at Greg Laurie's church in California. Had a ministry to deal with people with depression and anxiety. He co-founded it 
and committed suicide. And the reason why it stuck with me is I listen to Greg Laurie a lot uh, on, online and his different stuff. And I remember hearing about this and I, cause, and I, and I can honestly say in all my pressure, I've never felt like suicide would ever be the, I've always told my wife, if you hear I committed suicide, do an investigation. (laughs) But I always felt like before I got to that level, I just quit. I don't care. The whole world can be mad at me. I'm not doing that to my family. However, I'm not judging the man. I'm just looking and going, dude, the guy's ministry was to help people go through anxiety issues and depression. And I'm wondering how many of my brethren in this building help people every week with anxiety and depression and they're going through the same stuff and nobody's hearing it. And I'm like, they got to get a break. They got to get away from some of that stuff. And, and it's because we just don't like to deal with it. Have you guys ever studied the Dead Sea? So the water from the mountains in Lebanon, the snow melts and it comes down and comes into the Galilean Sea. The Galilean Sea is absolutely full of life because it releases all that water into the Jordan, which is full of life, and goes down into the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea doesn't have an outlet. It's just a receiver. By the way, this principle applies to church members. If all you're doing is receiving the word, but you're never releasing it, you're dead. So, But what I'm saying is pastors don't have an outlet sometimes. And the reason they're dying inside is they don't have a release. And, and I never felt anxiety or pressure as much as I, anxiety maybe. Depression was never major my thing, but I did feel like, oh my, I'm overwhelmed. I can't do all this stuff. Why do people keep looking to me to do this? I am not your life's problem solver. I mean, that's how I got, and maybe I am. Maybe it comes with the office. Now check this out. Jim Howard, lead pastor of a church uh, of about 6,000 people, uh, real life in California, fatally shot himself in the head at his home January 23rd, 2019. His associates, when interviewed, never heard the pain. They were all in shock because he's internalizing it. And he didn't have an outlet. And he didn't have time off to go and deal with grief. 6,000 members commit suicide. Ted Parker, 42, of Macon, Georgia, died of self-inflicted gunshot wound in the driveway of his home while his 800-member church and his family waited on him to show up Sunday morning to preach. Family doesn't even know it. They're all like, hey, yeah, you you guys go ahead. I'll catch up with you. 6,000-member church, 800-member church. Doesn't matter the size. We have all kinds of sizes of churches being represented in here. It doesn't matter. The problems are still real. This other guy, Andrew, who uh, is a famous guy too, he he tried to take his own life in his own mega church and died three days later. And all of them, and, and this Andrew guy, you know what his ministry was? Dealing with people with depression and anxiety. The very people who are solving the problems for somebody else's anguish they end up having on the inside and nobody hears it. And, and, and I know I'm trying to, it's kind of melancholy on how I'm putting a spin on this, but guys, how many guys sit in this building that are on this campus right now that would never talk about any of that stuff? Because what we do is, no, I'm a tough guy. I, don't know. You know, I ain't showing weakness. Yeah, and that's why 
it ends up doing this, all right? Brian Dodd states that pastoring has one of the top three suicide rates of any profession. He rebukes congregation members for not supporting their faithful leaders. He claims that complaining often inconsiderate members increase the stress and expect too much of their pastors. So maybe what we learn from here is let's be careful what all we just dump on the pastor. Maybe not every bit of this of your life's problems is designed to be going to that guy. And by the way, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in plurality of pastors at a church. I don't believe one man is equipped to do everything. everything. I think there ought to be multiple pastors at every church, Lord willing, because we just are not equipped to do it all. But even if we were, you're not a, you don't have the capacity to handle it all. And, and, and it sometimes can get to you. Now, check this out. All right. So now we've dealt with grief. But number four, before making an important decision, take some time off. All right. And before we make an important decision, and this once again applies, the principle applies to more than just pastors. It's everybody. It's life. Hey, me and my family are going to move. You might want to take some time off and think about that. Relieve yourself of duty. You might want to just chill. Find out what God has for you. Because it may not be what you've got conjured up. And in the moment of chaos, you make the wrong choice. Here is God in human flesh. And look at verse 12 of Luke 6. And it came to pass in those days that he went out in a mountain to pray and to continue all night in prayer. And when he was there, he called unto him his disciples. And... And of them he chose 12 whom he named apostles. So he had multiple disciples, but he's going to pick out 12 to make the apostles. And before he does that, he says, you know what? I'm going to go and spend the whole night in prayer with my father. You do realize this is God in human flesh. He knew from the foundation of the earth who the apostles were going to be. He's setting the principle for you and I to say, no, 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 no. Let's take some time. Let's, let's think through this. And sometimes we don't think through it because we're so busy doing everything else, right? Number, uh, number five, in times of distress, okay? Times of distress. Um, Luke 22, Jesus is in the garden, right? He knows what's about to go down. So what does he do? He goes and prays throughout the whole thing. And he separates himself from the disciples, He's like, you stay here and pr pray. I'm going to go over there and pray. He's going to get alone. And, you know, we all know the famous prayer. You know, if this cup can pass for me, if there's any other way, you know, we got that. But I think that needs to apply to us in times of distress. Um, I, I was told that Sherry went to church yesterday for the first time, or Sunday for the first time since Mark's passing. I think that's smart. Yeah, I agree. Take some time. Relax. God ain't mad because you didn't show up to church. We got this idea that God gets mad because I didn't show up there. No. God knows. He understands your heart, and she's not doing something like, ah, I just don't feel like going today. No, something tragic happened in her life. Take some time and relax. Now, I've never had that. I know Saddleback's pastor, uh, his son committed suicide, and he took some time off. And I think that the church would want that. Hey, man, he's grieving. He's going through this. Hey, go.
do your thing, we'll handle the job here, you go figure this one out. And yet, I don't think the average church member thinks that way. I just don't. I think they, because we're Americans, because we're Laodiceans, we have a tendency to go, me, me, me. Well, why is he taking time off? Does he understand what I'm going through? Uh, you probably are going through some stuff. Is he not allowed to? So we take off times in distress, all right? And number six, all right, to focus on prayer. I mean, that's a strange thing. Acts chapter six, we got some people arguing. Peter comes up and says, hey, uh, I don't think it's right that we're leaving the word of God to go deal with you guys. So let's get us some, some deacons. And once the deacons start handling that, then we will focus on two things. Word of God and prayer. And yet, the average pastor stays so busy, he doesn't get much time to prayer. And let's be honest, that's where the power is. The power isn't in your ability to theologically break down a verse. The power is in getting alone with God and God going, I'm going to take your little feeble mind and I'm going to do amazing things with it. But instead, we're like, no, I'm a genius, God. Watch this. You can take Sunday off, God. I have figured out this verse. I mean, I, I've got it down. I mean, I know we'd never say that out loud, but come on, that's, that's our approach sometimes. And God's going, no, 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 no. Prayer and spending time in prayer. 50% of pastors state they spend one hour of prayer each day. The reason I'm showing this is because I think they're lying. I don't think they do. I don't have one hour a day to pray. I don't have it. I mean, I, I, I probably should clear out other spots in my life, but my life and my schedule and way I run, I spend most of my time praying in my truck driving down a road on my way to the next deal. And, but as far as separating myself from life and going, I'm going into this room I don't want anybody to bother me, and I'm just going to spend an hour with God just praying. Now, I'm not talking about opening your Bible. And let's be honest, pastors. If you said, study the Bible for an hour or pray for an hour, I'll take the Bible. I, I'm just being honest. Praying's hard. And I don't think Satan gets rattled when you and I open a Bible. I think he gets rattled when we get on our face before God. Because that's really where it's at. Now watch this. I'm, I'm about done. All right. Matthew 7. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm a little behind. I'm used to preaching out in front of the, the screen so I can look at it. Now check this out. Matthew 17. So Jesus, James and John, they're all up on the Mount Transfiguration, right, with Peter. Jesus unzips his earth suit, steps out and says, check this out. This is the true glory that is hidden by this earthly vessel I'm in. Peter's like, this is awesome. Let's, you know, let's just camp here forever. While they're up on the Mount Transfiguration, this dude comes to the other disciples and says, I got a kid that's in bad shape. I need you to demon get the demon out of them. They can't do it. So Matthew 16 through 21, when Jesus comes down off the Mount, he's the guy says, hey, can you do something? Your, you know, your disciples out here are kind of weak. They can't do much. And so Jesus walks over, snatches the demon out of the individual, then turns around and says, dude, how long am I going to have to be with you guys? And he begins, and they were like, hey, 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 why could you do it and we couldn't? 
And he tells them, because this kind of power can only come through fasting and praying. Not studying your Bible, not going to conferences, not preaching. This kind of power, and I'm not talking about, I'm talking about power of God to walk in the Spirit of God. I'm not talking about removing demons. I'm talking about the ability to live out the Christian life. This kind of power only comes through fasting and praying. Now, let's don't raise hands, but think about how little we do that. How much time in my schedule do I carve off to say, eh, I need to do some fasting and praying. We're going to leave here, and the first thing we're going to think of is, where are we eating? Because that stuff doesn't cross our mind. And the reason the church is so powerless is because the very key to bring us power, we refuse to use. I don't need that key, God. I got a fob. I'll work with this. Now, I'm closing with this. All right? So let's talk about the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is this. If you're not a pastor, let's say you're an architect, you're an engineer, you're a medical doctor, you're a guy that's in a cubicle designing software for CPA programs, and you're a tither and you're, you're getting up on Monday morning and you're doing your deal, then the question and a rightful reason for questioning is, wait a minute. If I don't get a sabbatical from my computer programming job that provides the ties, which provides his salary, then why should he get off six weeks with pay? And by the way, that's a legitimate question, right? Because Satan doesn't care about your programming job. Satan is not attacking you at the architectural firm. What Satan knows is if I can strike or smite that shepherd, I can get that whole sheep to scatter. So what he does is says, I don't need to take out all those people at that church. I just need to take out that one. So when you get up in your daily life, yes, you are being attacked as a Christian. I get that. I'm not downplaying that. But are you getting attacked like that? So, Charles Stanley, many of you guys know, just retired, famous pastor here in Atlanta, awesome preacher. Gets on a plane, he's going to go fly out. And he looks down next to a lady, and she's got this weird book he's sitting next to, and he says, uh, what is that? She says, well, that's my Bible. He said, well, that, that's a weird-looking Bible. I've never seen a Bible like that. She said, oh, yeah, it's a satanic Bible. So he's thinking, okay. And so he starts asking her about it. What's the, what's the deal with that? And she said, oh, yeah, this is my satanic Bible. And, you know, I use it. I read and then I pray. He said, well, what do you pray about? He says, we got a list of pastors in America that we're praying against. And flips it open to list and show them. Guess whose name's number one? His. Yeah, right here, Charles Stanley. Now, imagine you sitting on a plane next to a Satanist, going, we're praying against you. And let me just start by saying, we have a God who is all-powerful, but do you understand their God isn't powerless? He's the God of this world. And so the guys that are standing in pulpits are up against it every single day. And so to have some rest 
to go and get away from it all is very important. So, all right, that's, that's it. I don't know if they're going to give you time off, Lee, but I did the best I could. I got it the second okay. time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Any questions? Yeah. All right. Did you take time off of your job, your business during no. I wouldn't be that fortunate. I, here's what I. No, no time at all even? Oh, well, she and I, so in the 12 weeks, I, I, like yes, I traveled six weeks out of the 12, but it was like in and out. Here's what I learned. My church isn't my problem. My job is my problem. I run a company. I wouldn't wish what my schedule is on any individual I know. It's been a nightmare. And when people say, how do you do it? My, and I'm not kidding you. I don't know. This has been the God thing that it makes it work. And, but the answer to your question is no, I couldn't. Here's our problem. This is why we, when I started out with nobody, with 30 people. I started pastor in 2006. In 2008, the economy tanked. For whatever reason, my business exploded. So my company became literally the life support for this place. So over the years, the company grew, grew, and grew, and the life support got bigger and bigger and bigger. So for me to go full-time, which our church can definitely do a full-time, we're about to put a guy on full-time. The deal is, is this. For me to do this, I'd have to shut down my company, which is going to cut off this portion of income into our church. Then I got to look at all these guys. Some of them have been with me 17 years. Hey, you need to go find a job. I'm going to go work for Jesus. And so we just looked at it and said, this can't be the long-term solution. Let's figure out another way. And so the, the way is we're going to bring in a different guy, and I'm just going to step back into a different role. So, but yeah, no, I... I would have loved to have 12 weeks off from that place. But unless, I don't play the lottery, but unless I did, that ain't happening. So, any question? All right, guys, have a great one. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.